thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. For this special edition of The Naked Scientists, we'll be looking at the science behind the Glastonbury Festival. We'll find out what it takes to turn a dairy farm into a thriving city for just a few days and return it with as little impact as possible. We'll also explore the scientific issues communicated at the festival and ask if a festival of performing arts is really the place for science. I'm Ben Valsler and this is The Naked Scientists' Science of Glastonbury. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. The Glastonbury Festival of Performing Arts is the largest greenfield music festival in the world. This year, it celebrated its 40th anniversary and nearly 200,000 people shared it with them. But turning a farm into a city is no easy feat, especially when it needs to be a working farm again within just a few weeks. For the festival to run smoothly, there must be adequate water, sanitation, road access and electricity to all corners of the site. The infrastructure that keeps the water flowing in and the waste flowing out is managed by Phil Miller. He explained the challenges of putting on the festival. Uh, The biggest challenge is to make sure that you have all the facilities in place for that volume of people, not only the people that are ticket holders, but the vast amount of staff that's on site as well. So you must make sure that there's sufficient water, adequate roads to get here, sufficient parking, sufficient toilets, sufficient showers, all the facilities. There's a a global problem for the side if we haven't got them in place. And, of course, the rest of the year, this is a working farm. You need to be able to reduce the impact that the festival has to keep the farm running. We try not to impact on the farm at all if we can help it. We leave the setting up of the site until May, generally. There is some impact during May, but not completely. The cattle have still been able to use the fields during the May period. It's just there's a time set for the licence purposes that they have to be off, I think it's about 28 days before the event. And then after the event, the clear-up process should take approximately three to four weeks. So the site's reinstated to a normal farmer game. So starting with the transport issues... How many roads do you need to build and can they just stay there all year or do you need to build temporary structures as well? The site has probably over 20 miles of road, including the camping areas and the temporary roads which are laid. And they are generally used as farm tracks during the winter months for all the farm operations because obviously it it includes several farms, the the amount of land that we need to actually put the uh, whole event on as well as the roads, it's bridges, and bridges sometimes not, aren't always strategically located. We have to strengthen them. Uh, with Arctic lorries coming onto site now, being in excess of 40 tonnes, we have to make sure that the loading capacity is appropriate for whatever vehicles come onto site. And in fact, you've built nine new bridges in the last year. We have completed nine bridges. I mean, of those nine, three to four are pedestrian bridges, which load-bearing obviously a lot less and a lot easier to provide. Uh, But the other ones are are mainly uh, load-bearing capacity. Some aren't necessarily new bridges. They are old bridges that were reinstating where they had failed the, uh, the test of time. Phil Miller. So I could see firsthand what goes into preparing the site, I was taken on a guided tour by Georgie Pope. First of all, a half-built bridge. Now we're at Bella's Bridge, which is um, the bridge that Michael Evers has said is going to be the loveliest bridge in the whole country. It's named after Bella Churchill. It's in the corner of the area that she liked the best. It obviously isn't quite finished at the moment. In fact, (laughs) we're standing next to it on some scaffolding. I assume it's all going to be ready in time for the festival. I assume so, too. (laughs) I hope so. 
it just looks like a fairly normal bridge to me. What, what is it that's going to make this the most beautiful bridge in the country? It's got this lovely grey stonework over here, which I think is quite pretty, and then it's got this wonderful curve, which sort of gives it that humpback look. It's a very attractive bridge. So once you have all these people here, obviously one of the most important things is to keep them well watered. Supplying water for this many people, keeping it clean and being able to get it around the whole area must be very difficult. Yes, uh, it's been a a learning curve over the last uh, few years and the new water regulations has uh, forced the festival to actually introduce improved facilities for all these people that uh, attend the event. What we've done in actual fact is uh, built two Category 5 reservoirs and that's the highest category that you can possibly have for a reservoir. Those tanks will hold about 2 million litres of water. The holding capacity is not the most important thing. The most important thing is that if you're using water at 25 litres a second, we need to replace the reservoir water with 25 litres a second. So what we've done this year is put in an underground water main, a six-inch main that runs around the side and uh, will be operating as any other town or city in the country. From that, there will be spurs taking the water to the strategic locations, giving us what I hope will be the appropriate water pressures. How do you keep that water clean? Because it is a um, directly sourced from the Bristol Water Supplies, and that we have got the Category 5 tanks, there shouldn't be any contamination issues. The new water regulations have stated that there will be tests, and we have 10 samples a day taken on site, and that's for uh, chlorine levels for chemical or microbiological samples. We, we shouldn't have any contamination from those uh, sampling points. If we did, then obviously we would have a problem, but uh, I'm fairly confident that with all the facilities we put into place, because we've renewed all the taps on sites as well as renewed the pipes and having the reservoirs, we, we shouldn't have any contamination issues. So thinking about the reservoirs themselves, how are they built? What have you had to do to put reservoirs into what's normally a farm? Well, first of all, you have to get some, some of the permissions in place we also have to have the licensing section of the council approve whatever changes we make on site. So th th there are a lot of people that become involved in permissions, and once those permissions are in place, the work is obviously checked after the event. At the moment, we're looking at finding uh, an accredited company to test our water pressures for us to make sure that all the systems that have been installed are going to be safe and usable prior to this year's event. And you were able to reuse the stone that came out when you actually excavated the reservoirs? Yeah, most of the stone that came out, uh, that we dug out for the reservoir, has gone back into roads. And uh, as I mentioned earlier about the bridges, you know, the strength of the roads and the bridges are really important because of the, uh, not only the weight of the vehicles, but the volume of vehicles that we have on site. We're very conscious of our carbon footprint and trying to make sure that we do everything that we should do and uh, we take into account the local community as well, um, reducing the lorry movements on site so on one way in which we do that and we are putting some of the materials from the reservoir back in roads. We're bringing in lock gates from the British Water Board that we're using to make bridges with and uh, seating around the side. So all the time we're thinking about how we can best recycle the equipment that we have on for the facilities that we need. So we've come to see not only the completed reservoir but also the reservoir that's still under construction. What have we actually got in front of us? It looks like a bomb shelter. <laughs> it would probably look after you if a bomb hit it. It's going to contain a million litres of water which is about as much as an Olympic swimming pool. It's deeper but narrower. But about the same length, about 50 metres long. There seems to be an enormous amount of concrete. Yes. But there's also, you can see that we've dug out the rock there, which will be used on the roads. So there's something reusable about this. But once it's all completed, and it looks like it's getting fairly close now, what will this actually look like? Is this going to be this concrete monstrosity all year round? Well, if you look over there, there's the site where the other million litre reservoir is and it's completely grassed over, so there's no sign of it at all. And the only clue that it's there at all is that concrete periscope type thing, which is where you can go down and it's a viewing chamber and you can see the levels and check 
everything's as it should be. So all that's left, other than beautiful-looking green grass, is a small area you can go and inspect the water from. Yeah, don't worry, it wouldn't look like this. Inevitably, this many people, over this much time, are going to create an enormous amount of human waste, an enormous amount of sewage. What can you do with that? Well, there's not a lot you can do with that. Obviously, it, it would have to be taken to respective plants and, and discharged in the normal way. We have improved the way in which that movement would happen over the last year. Uh, the haulage was quite a long way away at one stage, and now we've um, improved the local facilities at our expense to make sure that we can haul much shorter distances so that we aren't uh, having an adverse effect on, on the, the planet in that respect. It is a high volume of material that just has to be disposed of. We have looked at biodigesters. Biodigesters is great for animal waste at the moment. Um, if we can use it for human waste, we would, but we're not at that stage yet, and I don't think the uh, information is available for us to consider that. But the knock-on effect of the waste created at the festival is that now local area has better facilities to clean sewage all year round. Well, the, the money that has uh, been given to Wessex Water to improve their plants obviously would have an impact all year round. We, we only use that facility for 17 to 20 days, so it's a very short lifespan for us, but the facilities have been improved. We are standing next to three huge cylinders that are going to contain all the human waste produced by the festival, by which I mean poo. <laughs> <laughs> These are enormous silos. How much waste can you actually fit in one of those? Well, I think this new big one that's being built takes almost two million gallons of waste. Two million gallons of human waste. Yes. How much actually gets produced throughout the festival? Well... It never actually gets to the top because it will get half filled and then trucks will come halfway through it on the, every day and take some off it. So it's difficult to say exactly how much because it will never reach the top, but somewhere in the region of twice that. So almost four million gallons of human waste. Yeah, don't say it too many times. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> but it's the reality of it and it's something amazing they have to deal with. It's something that in a, in a city, you know, the sewage department's dealing with every day, but revellers and partygoers complaining about lack of loos aren't necessarily thinking about what's happening to their waste. And, of course, we're so used to the fact that our waste goes down into the sewage and is dealt with straight away that this really, really brings it to mind that it has to go somewhere and something has to happen to it. Yes, and quickly... <laughs> How long does it take, all in all? What's the, the time frame to turn a farm into a festival and back into a farm? Well, we try to do it in the shortest period of time possible, but I would say that we would probably need six weeks to build it and four weeks to dismantle it. But there's some things on site that take much longer, and that would be things like the reservoir and bridges. They need a little more engineering time. And how many people are involved? Well, the licence has a figure quoted for about 35 and staff. Uh, a lot of those staff will be uh, security staff uh, within the infrastructure section. We have about a thousand people that work for us, uh, but there's also a lot of volunteers. And if it wasn't for all the volunteers, you know, it would be very difficult to achieve the uh, levels of service that we do. The volunteers also, I understand, help a great deal with dealing with all the rubbish that's created during the festival. Yeah, they, they work in the uh, recycling area. We have a recycled barn. Uh, we have planning permission to improve that facility now. We want to make it larger and safer for people to work in because there's about 200 people working on that um, aspect of the site. So, again, it's quite a large operation. Well, you said that you would bring me to see the bins... I wasn't really looking forward to it. I've not got great experience of rubbish bins before, but this is incredible. It's a multicoloured mountain of reused oil drums. What's the story behind these bins? Aren't they beautiful? It's a fellow called Hank, and he has a team of 100 volunteers that come before the festival, and they all paint them, each bin unique, with wonderful, peaceable signs and invocations to recycle. They come back every year if there's more to be done, and they work for their ticket by painting bins. And do you know quite how much rubbish? There's a lot of bins here. 
A lot. There's a lot of rubbish. We've tried recycling it. We've recycled 50% last year and we're hoping to reduce the amount and recycle more next year. So the important thing really is to try and get people to think about rubbish in a different way because you're not just throwing it away into an ugly plastic or metal bin. These are things that people have put care and attention into to get you to think about your rubbish in a very different way. Yeah, and it adds to the to the feeling of the site. They're very colourful and they're very bright and that's, that's the sort of the way that the Glastonbury Festival site looks. So what's the next big challenge going to be for you? Clearly dealing with all the planning permissions, the regulations for the reservoirs have been a challenge to date. What do you think is coming next? Almost certainly biodigestion. We've already got uh, plans ahead for the solar panels on the, the farm roofs. But if we did have a biodigestion system working and it was successful, we would be able to probably reduce some of the generators that's currently used on site. It's a high volume of, of generators, but again, it's a very large site and a lot, a lot of people. So if we can build up supplies of energy that we could tap into during the festival period by selling back to the grid, you know, it would be great for us infrastructure manager Phil Miller explaining what's needed and Georgie Pope showing me the sights and smells of the farm as it gears up towards the festival. Two million litres of reservoir and a capacity for almost four million gallons of human waste might sound like plenty, but this year's festival was exceptionally hot and sunny. The heat led people to drinking far more water than expected and this inevitably led to a greater volume of liquid waste. Without these reservoirs and the additional waste capacity, this year's festival would have had to be cancelled. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and this week we're looking at the science behind the Glastonbury Festival. The Glastonbury organisers pride themselves on doing as much as possible to reduce their impact, not just on the farm itself, but on a global scale. Lucy Brooking-Clark coordinates the festival's green initiatives. One of the biggest ones is, is reduce, reuse, recycle. We kind of give that message across you know, all the people that work for the festival, all the area organisers and all the, the people that attend the festival goers. This applies to, of course, everything, to water, to the actual materials that you use, the rubbish you create. How can you keep a lid on this with such a dense population of people for such a short period of time? Well, yeah, that is our, our kind of ongoing challenge. Through educating people, I think because people come down here, they don't realise the infrastructure that is set up for the festival, you know, like the recycling operation that goes on. We're really trying to kind of message to people not to bring unnecessary items to the festival because things are so cheap that they buy them, they think, oh, I don't need this anymore, and they just leave it on the farm, and therefore that makes a huge impact on the volume of rubbish that's collected afterwards and, and to what the festival looks like. So through educating people that this is the same as being at home in the sense that your rubbish has to be dealt with, it doesn't kind of get magicked away and go to you know some other place, it all has to be processed. And just because you can recycle an item doesn't mean to say you should use lots of them. The idea is to reuse first reduce what you use and recycle at the end of the, the line. Do you find that you have a lot of things that really should have been taken home that get left here at the end of the festival? Yes, <laughs> lots and lots. Because the camping equipment is so cheap, you can pick up a tent, a roll mat and a sleeping bag all for kind of under £40. And when it comes to the Monday when people are so spent of all their energy and they've kind of partied hard for the last kind of five days and they look at the, the things that they're going to prioritise... A tent just doesn't seem to have the value that it would have done kind of 10 years ago if you borrowed it off your mum and dad, you thought, I've got to return it. And people live in flats and, you know, their circumstances are different. They just you find an excuse not to take it and just go, oh, I'm going to leave it. So what does happen to the things that people leave behind, either the things that can be used again or the real proper rubbish? Well, it depends on what it is. It's amazing what we do find a use for the things. We have a problem, with, say, with chairs. A lot of chairs get left, camping chairs, whereas all the plastic gets stripped off those and the metal gets weighed in, so then that does get recycled. 
the tents is a real problem because we can't find anything to do with the material. You can't kind of melt it down, you can't reuse it. No one wants to take it. So that is something that unfortunately has to go to landfill. But everything else, all the surplus wood, that gets chipped up, either reused or chipped up for wood chippings and then used across the site. The cans, they get weighed in, the plastic, that gets recycled. Is this all sorted on site or do you have to ship it out somewhere? It's initially sorted on site, so it's separated and then it gets taken and kind of weighed in. Well, that sort of brings me on to another point about sustainability, which is transport. Lots of things have to be, lots of things and lots of people have to be moved to and from the festival site. What are you doing to try and make that aspect more sustainable? Well, we're trying to make us as a festival more sustainable. So, for instance, the water, we used to truck the water on because we couldn't have it coming in through a mains, whereas now we've got two reservoirs, each of a million litres of water. So that means we've reduced truck movement there by not having that coming on and off. The sewage, we're going to process a lot more locally than we've had to before, which has gone 40 miles away. So it's looking at ways in which we can do away with vehicle movement. Um, Transport of audience is another big emissions factor for to put on an event because we're a green belt area and you've got a train station kind of 15 minutes away but we've got buses that come to the kind of doorstep really so we need to encourage people to come by public transport all of these things are put in place to try and make the festival more sustainable do you find that there's some overspill can you use the same things to make the farm itself more sustainable and even the area around the festival. Yeah, I think it has a very big impact on everything around. You know, you have an impact on the people that come, making them think about it. And the farm, we're looking into an an anaerobic digester, which would mean that we'd be sustained, you know, from all the produce that we have of slurry and grass cuttings that could be used to create energy and through solar panels on the roof of the cow shed, So things like that, it's looking at the resources around us and and how we can get energy from them. What's your next big plan? What's your next big sustainability goal? Um, We're hoping to get an anaerobic digester for the farm, which takes the waste of the cows and the sewage from the cows and the grass from the farm and you put it into a sealed unit and then through it gets heated up and then it has lots of little bugs inside that eat away out of it and say you put a volume a waste of 100 litres in there it reduces the volume and comes out at about 10 litres and then from that you create heat as well so then you can get electricity from that as well so that's a really big plan for us obviously financially it's a big outlay but it would help for our festival waste and for our farm waste so you'll be able to generate power throughout the year from the waste from the farm as well as using the waste from the festival to to add a bit more how much power do you think you're likely to generate We're being told it should be about a megawatt, which obviously is a lot. We've got to look into that because we're slightly sceptical that it wouldn't be as much as that. But if it would, happy days. Would you be able to sell the excess energy back to the grid in that case? Yes, we would. Yeah, we'd have excess energy so, you know, we'd be able to run stuff and we'd have more to give back for them to buy. Lucy Brooking-Clark on the festival's continued commitment to reducing its environmental impact. One example of recycled products coming full circle could be seen in the children's field, where shipbuilders Mark and Lorraine Can were putting recycled plastic to good use. Uh, you're looking at a child's play ship in the form of a double-ended tinner uh, made of steel and clad in plaswood, which is a recycled product. What's the advantage of using recycled plastic for this? None, really. It's quite a difficult material to use, but it closes the loop with the festival. Um, a lot of the plastic, well, all the plastic from the festival goes into the recycled plastic, and it's something that Michael Evers wanted us to have a go at using. Lorraine and Mark can. The entertainment industry has come under fire for hypocrisy with regards to environmental sustainability, with some artists giving an environmental message whilst chartering private jets to travel from gig to gig. Julie's Bicycle was set up to help the creative industry reduce its environmental impact. Working with theatres, tour managers, orchestras and festivals, they evaluate impact and recommend how to improve sustainability. 
I spoke to Helen Heathfield, Associate Director of Energy and Environment, about how festivals compare with more traditional forms of entertainment when it comes to sustainability. In many ways, they've led it, I think, because their environmental impacts are so visible. You know, everybody can see the rubbish lying around in the arena at the end of the show, and everybody can see the rubbish lying around in the campsite at the end of the festival. It's, it's just so visible, and I think also a lot of people who are involved with festivals really do have a strong nature and earth-based approach to their lives anyway. Camping is one of the lowest impact ways of living, even if it's just for a short time. So I think a lot of people involved in running festivals do have a, a strong environmental ethos. And so in many ways, the festivals have, have led on a range of initiatives around recycling and renewable energy and just running their events in a more aware way. How do you go about analysing the impact of something like a festival? Basically, we collect data about energy, water, waste and travel. So energy is largely to do with the diesel that's consumed in the generators on site. Though occasionally, rarely, a festival might actually be plugged into the grid. And then obviously we also collect data about any renewables that they're using, any biodiesel that they're using, so that's energy. Then on waste, we collect information about the tonnes of waste that's going to landfill, that's going to recycling and that's going to composting and anything that's able to be reused. Uh, for water, we're looking at the amount of water that's brought on site and then the amount of wastewater that's going off from toilets and so on. And then finally, with travel, it's a very vexed issue. At the moment, we ask festival organisers for any information they have about audience travel. And it's a tricky issue because it's not under the direct control of the festival organiser. Yeah, they can put all kinds of infrastructure in place. They can charge for car parking. They can do all kinds of things. But in the end, people will get to the site however they fancy getting to the site within limits. So we do ask for a bit of information about that if they have it. So those are the main areas that we focus on at the moment. And what sort of data were you getting from Glastonbury? How, how do these things break down at Glastonbury? Well, we haven't yet got the information for this year's festival. It often takes a while for all the invoices to come through for diesel and waste and water in particular. So I can't say anything yet about Glastonbury this year. What I can say about festivals in general is that audience travel is always the biggest impact. Um, just everybody getting to sites kind of swamps, really, the actual on-site impacts. Um, but then when you consider the energy, water and waste, all of that diesel usage is is normally the largest impact on site. And then any um, methane emissions from landfill are normally the second biggest. And then finally, any emissions from the water treatment is, is normally the, the smallest. I'm quite surprised, really, that people getting there is, in fact, the biggest impact. Mm. Castle Kerry train station was absolutely packed. So obviously, yeah. a great deal of people had done their best to travel by bus or by train. Yeah. And the people I was speaking to at the festival, a lot of them had driven because of the convenience. And when you're taking mm. your camping equipment, people mm. do choose to drive. Do you think there's anything that festival organisers can do to try and discourage driving? Yeah, a lot of them already are charging for car parking and also making a certain proportion of tickets tied to a coach journey and making sure that those people actually do arrive on the coach. But obviously, carrying all of your your tent, your camping material, your beer, your food, all that kind of stuff across lots of different public transport interchanges and then across lots of different fields is, yeah, people feel it's inconvenient. So what we've seen some festivals do is providing pre-ordered beer on site. Um, we've also seen some festivals providing a tent package on site, your tent and sleeping bag and all that kind of thing. It's that kind of um, approach, trying to provide things for people on site so that they've got less to carry and then that they're happier to take the coach. There's also been some interesting initiatives where they've been seeking to make the coach part of the festival experience, having bands um, and other kinds of entertainment on the coach um, so that it really becomes part of the fun. And we certainly found, we did two years ago now, we did some research on audience travel and we found that people who took the coaches 
really enjoyed it. They weren't expecting to, and they enjoyed it more than they more than they thought. So I think people have often have a rather fixed idea in their mind that the car is really convenient and that coaches aren't. But actually, that isn't borne out by experience. Obviously, uh, a large part of what you do is looking at how the entertainment industry can try and reduce its impact. Does the entertainment community have a responsibility to reduce their own impact, but also to encourage others? Mm, It definitely has a responsibility to reduce its own emissions. So I think taking those actions to improve venues, improve festivals, improve touring behaviour is really, really crucial. And then once once we start to see results and you know there's reductions that we can claim and that are robust the artist is obviously then in a much stronger position to be able to say this is what the industry has done this is what i have asked for this is what i have got and so therefore what are you the audience going to do next i think there's something really important about tackling climate change, which is about tackling this feeling of disconnection and being alone and feeling powerless. And so I think there's really important stories to tell about how we're in it together, we can all make reductions and improvements together, and that it's just a lot more fun, I think, <laughs> if we do do it together. That's a very important message for me, and which I think the in- entertainment industry as a whole is in a very strong position to communicate. Helen Heathfield from Julie's Bicycle. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. A wealthy Matilda, a couple of terms you want to know. Billabong is a pool of deep water. A Coolamar tree is a type of tree. (laughs) And you'll sing a chorus for, will you, with me on this? Once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong. Under the shade of a Coolabar tree And he sang as he watched and waited till his billy boiled This is The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler, and this week we're looking at the science behind and the scientific issues at the Glastonbury Festival. Many groups use the festival as a chance to communicate with the public, and many of the issues they're communicating have a scientific topic at their core. But is a music festival really a good place to communicate science? I spoke to Will Luton. He was a volunteer with Greenpeace who had a very visible presence at the festival. We are here very much to represent green issues. Greenpeace basis is formed around uh, environmental issues as well as peace and disarmament. We have a large campaign this year focusing around palm oil and deforestation. The green issues that you have have at their heart a, a scientific issue. What sort of priority do you put to communicating the science with people or are you more engaged with the politics? Both of those things are extremely important for Greenpeace and I don't think that you can separate one from the other very easily. All of our uh, campaigns are led by science and the science leads, hopefully, policy change. And specifically, what are you doing here at the festival? Okay, so there's the central Greenpeace field where we have fun campaign things. So we have a skate ramp down there, we have the rainforest showers. So that's very much about communicating our campaign issues and our campaign uh, agenda. We also have a presence backstage here, which is where we are now, where we are very much again communicating with people one-on-one and talking to people about what we do. Do you think people are engaging with the issues? Yeah, certainly. I, I've had some absolutely fantastic conversations with people. We've been pushing the fact that every 16 minutes we lose a piece of land, which is the size of the Glastonbury site in Rainforest. That's every 16 minutes, which is absolutely huge and completely unsustainable. And people have been reacting to that. And it's been really fantastic. Uh, I think people really want to get behind what we do. This being the International Year of Biodiversity, do you think people are a bit more clued in to issues surrounding things like habitat loss? I think so, yeah. We, we have the conversations with people and we very much find that they, they say, did you do that thing last year? We've heard this thing about this other thing. I think people are very much aware of issues and becoming more and more aware, particularly habitat loss as well, has been off of the radar for a long time. And it's been, it's been great to bring it back and talk to people about it. Will Luton on Greenpeace's activities at Glastonbury. Another group with a strong presence was WaterAid. So I spoke to Melanie Tompkins. 
WaterAid has been involved with Glastonbury since around 1994. It's a dual relationship. We provide a service at the festival. We man the latrines, we do them with sheepies, we do litter picking, and we also receive a donation back from Michael and Emily, who are really, really strong supporters of us. It's a really brilliant place for us to campaign because people are very alive to the issues such as going to the toilet, getting something to drink. And because WaterAid is about helping the world's poorest people get access to safe water and sanitation, people have got a little bit of an insight into what it's like when the things that you're so used to aren't there and you're struggling a little bit. At the moment, there are 884 million people in the world who don't have access to safe water and 2.6 billion that don't have something as simple as a toilet. What are the problems that come from not having access to safe water and sanitation? The problems that come with not having safe water and sanitation, there's sort of many layers to it. A fact that's probably startling at the moment is that 4,000 children die every day from a lack of safe water and sanitation, diarrheal diseases. That's more than AIDS, malaria and measles combined. And the problems with water fetching, it's normally the girls that are tasked with having to get all the water. And so there are times when girls then miss out on education, they miss out on school because they're having to fetch the water. Obviously, health is a very big issue. If you're drinking dirty water, you're getting disease, your health is bad, but also your ability to go out and work and earn money is also bad, as well as falling out on education. And there are things as simple as when a school has toilets, girls, especially around the age of puberty, are much, much more likely to actually go and get an education. So there's many layers to the reasons why safe water and sanitation are real, sort of very essential sort of first steps to getting people out of poverty. How do you find people are engaging with your message here? People really engage here. It's a really, really great space for it because the ethos of the festival is all about giving back and social justice and doing good. Of course, people, the fact that toilets are an issue here, maybe showering's an issue here, going to get water's an issue here. It's a really good combination for us. People are very open to it, they're very supportive, and it's a really fantastic campaigning spot for us. Melanie Tompkins from Water Aid. Lesser known groups also seize the opportunity to get their message out. Ross McLeod from the Optimum Population Trust. The Optimum Population Trust is an organisation that's established to raise awareness about world population as an environmental issue. Just get the word out there that the world's population is full to bursting point. Encourage contraception and talking rationally, just having an educated debate about it, really. And what do you plan to get out of being at Glastonbury? At Glastonbury, you're trying to raise awareness. We're offering condoms to all the young people at Glastonbury and trying to avoid unwanted accidental pregnancies but mainly it's just making people aware that it is an issue and it's as big an environmental issue as any other. Offering condoms to people at festivals is a good way to try and avoid as you say unwanted pregnancies and possibly some teenage pregnancies but population issues are a global problem aren't they? It's not just our population we need to be thinking about. They absolutely are but what we're trying to get across to people here is although the UK has got a birth rate of 1.8 we're consuming massively more than our own share of the world's resources. We produce 35 times as much CO2 as your average Bangladeshi and 160 times as much CO2 as your average Ethiopian. So we need to take our share of the blame and we need to do something about it. As developing countries become more developed, people tend to live longer and their consumption actually goes up. So how can we as a developed nation advise or help developing nations to put a lid on population before it becomes a problem? Well, as healthcare improves in developing countries, we uh, would like to educate and empower women so that they understand they don't have to have so many children as they would have beforehand when many might have died. Encourage them to be in control of their own fertility so that they're, uh, they're responsible for when they get pregnant and it's their decision. How do you get around some of the cultural issues that will get in the way of that? Very male-dominated societies or where you have had traditionally very large families? The major things are to encourage education and empowerment of women, so getting women uh, into schools, young girls into schools, and getting them the vote and just getting them a good, strong footing in society. 
That was Ross McLeod from the Optimum Population Trust. As well as large international issues, there were groups highlighting the more local problems. Michelle Osborne from Somerset Wildlife Trust. Somerset Wildlife Trust is one of 47 wildlife trusts across the UK. We're all individual charities, but we all work collectively towards a living landscape. We're trying to restore, recreate and reconnect habitat across the country so that wildlife can thrive and people can feel alive again. We manage 82 nature reserves. We have over 300 volunteers who help us with that. And we also run education programmes, advocacy programmes, trying to influence decision makers and make sure that wildlife is high up on the, the environmental agenda. So what are the challenges currently facing British wildlife? Well, wildlife is under threat from many quarters. Natural England produced a report this year which says that on average we are losing one or two species per year from this country, which is quite startling. We are on the brink of the sixth big extinction, really. Species are being lost at a phenomenal rate against what the baseline should be. In the UK, the threats are quite varied. Habitat loss and fragmentation, development pressure, um, pollution incidents are still a problem, and... What we're trying to do to address that is to identify habitats that are still in good nick, buffer those as much as possible with habitat creation, and to start connecting them up linearly so that wildlife have highways, corridors so that they can move. Because the problem you get, once wildlife is isolated and on its own, becomes very vulnerable to major events, you know, disease inbreeding as well it's a bit of a problem so we need to make sure that wildlife can move around especially in the face of climate change because whatever happens here whether we get warmer whether we get colder wildlife is going to have to change its geographic range so we've got to facilitate that movement and just get stuff moving this being the international year of biodiversity are you seeing greater awareness in the public are people more tuned in to the sorts of issues that we're looking at I wish that I could say yes, they are. Um, climate change has moved up the agenda rapidly in the last 10 years. You know, People are all switched on to renewable energy. But what they don't seem to be understanding is that sustainability, true sustainability, means looking after all facets of the environment. And biodiversity is the most fundamental bit of that. If we lose wildlife, if we lose that great big biological variety that we have then our ecosystems start to suffer. This is where everybody turns off now. But ecosystems, goods and services, things like soil fertility, crop pollination, fuel, clean air, clean water, all those things rely upon biological diversity. Without our wildlife, we're in trouble. We are in big trouble. A good statistic that I heard the other day from an eminent scientist is that one in every three mouthfuls of food that you take has involved a pollinating insect at some point. So we lose our insects, no more food. What are you doing here at Glastonbury? What do you plan to get out of being part of the festival? Well, what we're hoping to do today is just raise general awareness about wildlife and the issues facing wildlife. We're encouraging people to come into the yurt today and to visit our traditional cider orchard and to make a pledge for wildlife. What is the one thing that you could do to support local wildlife in your area? Could you volunteer for your trust? Could you join your local wildlife trust? Maybe you will say that you will only eat conservation-grazed meat, for example. There's all kinds of things that you can do. People tend to go for the obvious ones, like having a wildlife garden, but, you know, think outside the box here you could create a pond in your window box for example there's all kinds of things that you can do to just do your little bit for wildlife and green up your patch and how do you think the festival goes here are taking it pretty well really we've got a good range of activities we're doing face painting for the kids we're doing willow crafts as well just to get them back to nature using materials people are loving the uh, the orchard and are just going in and sitting down and hopefully having a real think about how they impact on biodiversity and what they can do to do their bit for it that was michelle osborne if you're interested in the wildlife around you, or if you want to know what species share your local area, then why not join the Open University's iSpot online community? iSpot is a website aimed at helping anyone identify anything in nature. You just upload your pictures and join in the discussion. To find that, visit thenakedscientists.com and follow the link on our homepage.
The Green Futures Field, where the Wildlife and Optimum Population Trusts had set up camp, was full of clever ideas for sustainability, from solar panel workshops through to permaculture. Many things on show are there to challenge you into rethinking your way of life, including a sustainable way to keep your clothes clean. Hi, I'm Alex Gadsden, uh, inventor of Cycling, which is a pedal-powered washing machine. So how does this actually work? Well, straightforwardly, it's built by recycled components. And, uh, yeah, it's putting a bike together with a washing machine using the crucial part, which is a hand-built universal joint, because the machine likes to move around and do its own thing, so you've got to kind of work with it. So creating this universal joint gave it the flow and just made it work. Electric washing machines are very energy-intensive, but spin at ridiculous rates. What sort of spin rate can you get from gearing up a bicycle? Well, minimum with the gearing we've got at the moment, we've got uh, 520 RPM, and that's on a just a really sort of straight, easy forward spin cycle. But if you really want to push it, you could get 1,000 RPM out of there, no worries. How clean does it get the clothes? Is it as good as using all that electricity? Whiter than white. <laughs> Alex Gadsden, inventor of Cycling, the pedal-powered washing machine. Bringing the facts to bear... The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist's Science of Glastonbury special with me, Ben Valsler. As one of the world's largest and most well-established music festivals, Glastonbury is very influential. As well as music, the festival has comedy, theatre, cinema and a poetry and spoken word tent where I met Barbara Brinkman, the writer of The Rap Guide to Evolution. That is also the idea that most enrages Darwin's detractors. And when I say Darwin's detractors, I'm specifically talking about his religious detractors like creationists, not his scientific detractors. There are none. It's the idea that we, we came from ape-like ancestors. Hello, the name is Baba Brinkman from Vancouver, Canada, and we are at the Poetry and Words tent at Glastonbury. Well, in the set that I just did, it was a little bit of the rap guide to evolution, some of the more uh, rabble-rousing material with uh, I'm an African and uh, creationist cousins always goes down pretty well because as a spoken word piece, it's got a quite a like personal uh, side to it. And I also premiered my rap adaptation of The Epic of Gilgamesh, which I've uh, given the sort of the hip-hop slash science treatment. Um, and I'm taking that to the Edinburgh Fringe this year, and this was the first crowd that had heard it. So I feel like it down, went down pretty well. I, I didn't know what to expect. What do you think of Glastonbury as an event to talk about these sorts of things? Well, I think Glastonbury is known as a big super rock star headliner festival, but it is a festival of performing arts in, in all its guises. You know, the Poetry and Word Tent is a bit of a, a strange beast because, um, you know, it's that ecosystem without a real uh, locked niche species that's holding it down. So, you know, the, the pioneer species drift through and uh, some of them sort of morph a little bit if they decide to stay. But you get a lot of randomness passing through this one for sure. It's like a Galapagos Island in a way. Barbara Brinkman. The poetry and spoken word tent has been growing year on year, but for a musician, the opportunity to play on the Pyramid stage, the festival's biggest stage, is one not to be missed. Singer-songwriter and actress Paloma Faith performed on the Pyramid stage on the final day of the festival. Well, it's the biggest festival and has the most attention, so I think it's the most widespread contact with your public that you can get of any festival in Britain. It's one of the biggest in the world, I think. So there's TV exposure, radio exposure, the lot. Do you think it's important for festivals to try and reduce their impact on the environment? Completely, but I think the fact that it's out in the countryside and especially this year, the weather's so amazing, kind of automatically promotes care for the environment anyway because otherwise we wouldn't have spaces like this to enjoy music in. Paloma Faith on why the festival is so important for a performer and how the environmental message hits home. I don't think it's every day that I'll get to open up for Slash, so thank you, Glastonbury, for that. It's 
pretty fun. Stand-up comedian Josie Long, performing in the cabaret tent, also felt that politics and environmental messages have a strong root in Glastonbury. I think it's definitely about politics. It's always been about politics. It's always been about ecology and about bringing people together on the left. So do you think a music festival is a good venue to bring up those sorts of issues? Well, definitely. I mean, like, traditionally, think about all, all the things that music... Like in the 80s, you had, like, Rock Against Racism. They always went hand in hand. They're like all protest songs in the 60s. Yeah, absolutely. And moving on to more of the sort of scientific issues, do you think it's important that festivals try and reduce their impact on the environment as well? Oh, yeah, God, everything should. I think it's important that literally everything reduces its impact on the environment. I would, I would go so far as to say it was essential. <laughs> You're also, you've been on record showing a strong interest in astronomy. How's that going? I still have one. I, I don't, I tell you what, um, what I feel bad about is that I never get time to um, go and do some stargazing, which I, I would really like to do quite a lot. I always tend to be in London and gigging and missing out on things. and So I, I don't get to do much practical astronomy. What I really like about astronomy is how much it's a good example of integrating science with a lot of other things. There's so much physics in it and you can relate it to lots of maths and things like that and also it's just about categorising and putting things in boxes and working stuff out and that I love but then again it just is wonderful in the truest sense of the word it just inspires you to wonder it's fantastic and it's thinking about things which are gigantic and overwhelming and looking at things which are beautiful and I mean I appreciate like cell biology has some of that like you look at it and you're like look at the patterns and stuff but it's brilliant Science is really part of our culture as well. Do you think there's a strong place for science at festivals like Glastonbury? Yeah. I think especially in terms of like the Green Futures field, it's, it's really important to educate people who otherwise might not get to know about uh, sustainable technologies, for example, and, and also about scepticism. <laughs> That's quite important. Although it's a funny one, Glastonbury, because you've still got a lot of pretend healing and people going like, I'll tell your future for £25 which I'm not sure I entirely approve of. Josie Long on the appeal of science and the presence of pseudoscience at festivals. Broadcaster and comedian Robin Ince incorporates a great deal of science into his comedy, quoting from Carl Sagan, Charles Darwin and Richard Feynman, among others, in his sets. I asked him if he felt science could find a home at music festivals. Well, I think it's all moving on a lot now. I mean, I think you go back a few years, and it, I mean, most music festivals were only two tents, and, and now if you come to somewhere like Glastonbury or Latitude or Bestival, Secret Garden, they've got lots of, you know, they've got spoken word and they've got other kind of poetry and they've got stand-up and also that are the these great things which are breaking out where someone will say do you want to go into a maze or into a forest and explain something to people so I think probably Glastonbury is quite a tough one because it is so enormous but I can see that happening I mean I hope for the show that I do on Radio 4 Infinite Monkey Cage with Brian Cox we're already talking about trying to do it at Glastonbury next year taking over Comedy Tent and I think that would work really well and I think also sometimes now people there's so much music they want to break and it's nice to be able to sit down and allow ideas to waft over you and also waft into you as well. If they just waft over you, it's a disaster. It's probably not premature to say that you're one of a, a front line of people who are bringing science into popular culture, but at Glastonbury, it's a festival of performing arts. Do you think science actually has a place? I think science could easily exist at the Glastonbury Festival. I think you could have, you could start like with the, the poetry, spoken word tent that was very small a few years ago. It's got bigger and bigger. And I think to, if you started just by having, say, three hours a day in one of the tents that became the science, I think people now, due to things like the ones of the solar system and obviously the year of Darwin, I think, was a, a great way of getting things out and, and people getting more and more into that. And obviously with CERN and all of these things that are going on, people are really interested. And I think they would come. If you, if you put someone in a tent if you if you had brian cox in a tent or simon singh or olivia judson doing one of her pieces about the sex life of animals people would be interested they'd come there's a lot of people here talking about the politics of issues that have at their heart a scientific problem water aid are here clearly the issues of clean water and sanitation it's a scientific problem do you think there's too much focus on the politics 
it's very difficult when you say is there too much focus on the politics. What we need to do, I think, is to educate the people actually and the charities to get the science ideas out there. I mean, I did something at climate camp yesterday, and obviously, you know, man-made climate change is a very big issue, and unfortunately, due to the nature of the media, we have a country where it seems to be 50-50 in terms of people who believe in it and people who don't. And mainly it's arts graduates writing a newspaper saying it's all rubbish with no scientific backing. So to work out a way of making palatable science communication about major issues is a very important thing to do. And I think somewhere like here, if people could find out more than just the political angle and the, these children uh, you know, dying, and uh, to actually get this, these are the solutions. Because that's the great thing science gives, is science doesn't really say, look at the faces of the starving or the collapse of infrastructure and, and the, uh, the, you know, with, with the biosphere, basically, all of these things. Science goes, and if we do this, so it doesn't become a negative thing. Often I think some of these charities, it is driven by the negativity and the, and the tragedy. But to also go, and as well as giving money, not only will we be able to create this but if we get enough money we can start really to work out a solution do you think there's a risk of alienating people if you push the politics before the science when you watch something like carl sagan's there's clips on the internet of pale blue dot where he muses on this you know, moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam and um, I think even if people just realised how tiny we are and that we are here suspended in this obscure part of a not particularly impressive galaxy, that immediately gives you a focus on going, yeah, this is, we've got one attempt on this, on kind of getting it right. We're this tiny little lump of rock. We are, every time that you think that there is no other known life as yet in the universe we are the only example that we know of of life in the universe this makes it a very precarious thing why is the you know the other should we say eight or nine planets whichever you prefer in our solar system why do they appear to have no traces of life on them and why when we venture out further into the galaxy why, why are we not picking up any sense of life that means it's not often happening and I think just to even focus on anyone who hasn't ever watched the Carl Sagan Pale Blue Dot clip that's on YouTube should look at it because I think that gives you more focus than you know a hundred marches When you first started weaving science into your comedy sets it was mainly focused on scepticism what are the things that are catching your interest now? Well, now I'm trying to explain... I mean, I started off, obviously, by talking about psychics and homeopathy and, and, and kind of bunkum New Age things. And now I'm trying to focus more and more on the actual beauty of the ideas within science. So when you look at DNA and the system of, of, of replication and how the mutation... Yeah, that, to me, is a very exciting thing. The moment that you think that every single human being and every single living thing on this planet is a mistake. I always like thinking that the great thing about DNA replication is it's cack-handed. By being cack-handed, we have thumbs, we have eyes, we have ears, we have all of these things, and other beasts can see colours that we can't see, and you look at a tree and you think of the history of the tree that's led to that. And so I'm trying to talk more and more about the passion behind it rather again rather than the negative side of going it's a great pity that a lot of people believe in something with no rationalism or empiricism behind it and just lastly have we just had a glastonbury exclusive that we should expect brian cox here next year well i think brian cox will be on the pyramid stage he will actually be suspended like a moat of dust in a sunbeam and it's quite incredible actually i was with brian cox at the cheltenham science festival and it has now since the last time we hung out anywhere in public like that people just you know they go it's brian cox it's brian cox going you know and, and as, as a rock star he never became a famous rock star he's realized that physics should have always been the route to being the famous rock star and I think what he does is fantastic it is very much in the tradition of things like Carl Sagan's Cosmos which was a great influence on him people watch Wonders of the Soul System and they do go wow and that's the great thing about science there is I, I don't like using that term wow factor but there is every day there's something I read or there's something I look at or just looking at the sky or the sun and I think this is incredible and this is what we need to instill into society it really is absolutely wonderful that life exists in so many different ways and what a pity that the one beast that has learned to live by altering the landscape may well be something that destroys well it doesn't destroy the landscape i mean as george carlin said whenever we talk about we don't want to kill the earth we won't kill the earth we might kill ourselves but there'll be other creatures that will still exist it's just that they might not have self-consciousness maybe self-consciousness is a glitch Robin Ince explaining why he finds science so inspirational. 
That's all for this Glastonbury special edition of The Naked Scientists. Next week, Miracentha Lingam brings you the high-speed science of the Tour de France. The Naked Scientist was produced by Chris Smith and presented by me, Ben Valsler. It was produced in association with The Open University. To discover a whole range of science content, including lots of interactive features, log on to thenakedscientists.com and follow the links to The Open University. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.